Celebrating Easter, we are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. My name is Tom. Uh, I have the privilege of sharing with you today. And I'm on the teaching team here. Um, but more importantly than that, I, uh, I'm a Christian. Jesus has changed me. He has saved me, not because of anything that I have done, not because of any good thing that I could bring to the table, but because of his grace and because of his mercy. Now, you guys, we're going to be in the scriptures today because I'd much rather you hear from the word of God than from me. So if you brought a Bible, that's great. We'll have the words up on the screen as well. But if you don't have a Bible, if you don't own one or maybe you forgot yours at home, we have Bibles available And if you just want to stick your hand up in the air, someone will bring you a Bible if you would like to have one. And it is yours. Feel free to take it home if you don't own a Bible. I want you to have the Word of God in your hand. The title for today's sermon, this Easter morning, is A Different Kind of Greatness. If you've been with us for the last 10 weeks, you will know that we've been in a series going through the book of Philippians in the New Testament. We've titled this series, Greater Than. And it's built around a verse in Philippians 3.8 where the Apostle Paul says, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. Now, if you're anything like me, you like a good, healthy debate Let's not call it an argument, but sometimes one of the things people like to debate is who's the greatest, who's the GOAT, the G-O-A-T, greatest of all time, who's the greatest musician, the band, the greatest actor, the greatest basketball player. Some would say Michael Jordan, some might say LeBron James, some might wrongly argue Kobe. But one of the things about these arguments that you might read in these online forums is that they always kind of take a similar form. That is to say, the people are compared, and the comparisons are almost always by a difference of degrees, not by a difference of kind. To say it differently, the comparisons are almost always argued in terms of quantity, not category. So they might say, well, Jordan has more NBA titles, or so-and-so has more uh, MVP awards, or scoring titles, or all-star game appearances. But it's always by a difference of quantity or degree, but not of kind or category. And, and I think we use, when we talk about these things, we use relative Comparative language like more than or less than to show how one person is quantifiably better than another. And I think when we say things like knowing Jesus is greater than or that Jesus Christ himself is greater than, unfortunately, we can make the potentially fatal mistake of applying the same sort of greatness to him. And what we walk away with is this perception that, yeah, Jesus, he was probably a bit more loving than me. He was probably a bit more kind than me. He was probably a bit more sacrificial, more noble, more disciplined than me. 
And what we might walk away with when we think about the greatness of Jesus, if we're applying the same sort of thinking to him, is that essentially Jesus Christ is just a little bit better version of me. Which I would say is absolutely false. I would say it's false because Jesus' difference from us is not a difference of degrees. It is a categorical difference of kind. Someone commenting on Genesis 1 said one time that God made man in his own image. And then man turned around and returned the favor. Right throughout the Old Testament, over and over, God is making this plea to his people after they try to to domesticate him, to neuter him, to treat him as something less than what he actually is. He says things like in Isaiah 55, this one won't be on the screen. He says, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. My ways higher than your ways. You're nothing like me. And in a very clear critique, buried in the middle of Psalm 50, God is rebuking the Israelites in the Old Testament. And the writer Asaph records God's words in Psalm 50, 21. He says, these things you have done and I kept silence. Check this out. You thought that I was just like you. Last week, Jeff was up here and he was looking at Philippians 2, 5 through 11, and we talked about the kenosis, the the emptying of Jesus to take on human form to die for us. Speaking of the resurrection, Jeff tipped his hand a bit and said last week that it is Easter, though, that is the ultimate turning point in history. A couple days ago, we celebrated Good Friday, And friends, there is absolutely nothing good about Good Friday apart from Easter Sunday. There is nothing good about Good Friday apart from Easter Sunday. Because it's here at Easter that Jesus definitively displayed that he wasn't greater by a matter of degrees that he wasn't just a little bit quantifiably better, a slightly better version of any one of us, but that he is categorically greater. It's on Easter that Jesus himself possesses and demonstrates a different kind of greatness by doing something that had never been done and could never be replicated by an individual, and it was born out of who he is God's own son. It is where Jesus clearly demonstrated that he himself was greater than death. And there might be some here who at that statement, Jesus rose from the dead, maybe you outwardly, maybe in your heart, you scoff. And you think, this is so stupid. How could anyone believe that? What foolishness is that? Why do we come to church on Christmas and Easter again? What are we doing here? You might say, of course, this is just what I expected to hear. Jesus rose from the dead. That's completely untenable. And and I have two things. If that's you, whether you're a Christian or not, I have two things to say to you. The first one is, hey, that is okay. That is absolutely okay. 
I didn't grow up going to church. I've still lived most of my life apart from Christ. The fact that I'm up here right now feels like this long con, this long like April Fool's joke, right, that came together in 2018. I shouldn't be up here. For most of my life at this point, I would still have say, this is ridiculous. How could anyone believe that? The first thing I'd say to you is, that's okay. I'm really glad you're here. The second thing I would say is, what did you expect to hear? You know, if you were to show up on a Sunday morning and you were to sit in church, and that church on Easter Sunday did not talk about the physical, bodily resurrection of God's own Son, the church you are in is not a Christian church. This event, the rising of Jesus, is the defining event for any Christian's faith. The Apostle Paul, writing about the the resurrection of Jesus in 1 Corinthians 15, said very clearly, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, that is, if our hope in Jesus has nothing to do with what's beyond this physical life, if Jesus isn't raised, do you know what Paul says? 1 Corinthians 15, 19 then we are of all men most to be pitied. If Jesus isn't raised, we shouldn't be here. This is pathetic. But if he is raised, then being here, then putting our confidence in him changes absolutely everything. There's a character in the Old Testament, a man named Peter, who I kind of want to look at today. Peter was one of Jesus' disciples. He was a fisherman by trade after his father's practice. Jesus surprisingly went after and he called Peter, a fisherman from the northern area of the Sea of Galilee, to follow him, to be his disciple. And this disciple, Peter, is the one that we know the most about the most documented guy. And Peter, I like him because he's a lot like me, and I think he's probably a lot like you. Peter didn't always understand. Peter was oftentimes brash, impulsive, passionate, kind of a a ready-shoot-aim sort of guy. And Peter, like many of us, went through a process of understanding who Jesus was really was. I want you to think of the stage here as a timeline, right? Peter's timeline. Over here we have the past, we're going to move forward to the future, and we're just going to look at Peter's life, and we're going to kind of look at how did Peter understand Jesus? How did Peter understand Jesus's resurrection? Did he always believe it perfectly? Was it easy for him? The answer is no. And the same is true for us. Guys, we're going to start over here about six months before Jesus was crucified. Peter and the disciples have been following Jesus now for about two and a half years. And we're going to land in Matthew 16. Last week, Jeff looked at Matthew 16, that that statement that Jesus asks his disciples, who do the people say that I am? 
A little, little later on in the passage, Matthew 16, starting in verse 21, says this. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. Jesus here for the first time clearly and explicitly says, this is what's going to happen to me. Verse 22, Peter took him, took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him saying, God forbid it, this shall never happen to you. Peter takes Jesus aside and says, God forbid it. Peter takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. Peter could not get his head around this idea that this man who he was following, who he had witnessed doing miracles, this man who may be the Messiah, who may not be, we're still not sure. After two and a half years, it's still not clear. He rebukes him, and Jesus responds. He turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, if you are not, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. The only person who's called Satan in the scriptures, apart from Satan, is Peter. This was a big deal. Can you imagine the other 11 disciples? Did he just say what I think he said? Did he call? He couldn't have said that. He, he did. This was a big deal. Peter, obviously, early on, still after following Jesus for two and a half years, he did not get it. And that was not the only time that Jesus spoke clearly about his impending death and a resurrection. And incidentally, it was not the only time that the disciples, Peter included, did not get it. But again, Peter was in a process of understanding what it meant that Jesus died and was resurrected, much like you and much like me. One of our great American poets, Emily Dickinson, wrote this about understanding the, the glory of God's truth, of who he is, and she says very simply, the truth must dazzle gradually or every man be blind. And we understand that with Peter, just like us, there was this process of beginning to see with some clarity what it meant that Jesus died and Jesus rose again. We're going to fast forward now on our timeline, and we're going to come to Easter Sunday, right? Jesus has been crucified. Now we're in Luke 24, and we are here at Easter Sunday, and it says this. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen." Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven, to all the rest. Now there were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James. Also the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. But these words appeared to them as nonsense. 
and they would not believe them. Verse 12, but Peter, Peter got up and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings only, and he went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. Jesus has risen from the dead. The stone that was covering the entrance to the tomb, this cave, had been rolled away. These women who had been following Jesus go the day after the Sabbath to anoint the body, to prepare spices to cover Jesus with. He's not there. Two angels tell them, why are you looking for him here? He's risen, just like he said he would. These women go back to the disciples, and they do not believe it. But Peter, oh Peter, he goes to the tomb. And what we have is the word in verse 12, Peter marveled at what had happened. I get the sense as I read this that that. From Matthew 16, something has changed in Peter. Something has happened. And while he can't say with definitive clarity, this is what the resurrection means, I I get the sense all these pieces now are starting to come together. Why isn't Jesus here? What does it mean the angel said that this would happen? How is this all? He's marveling. And let's scoot forward a couple more days on our timeline. This isn't to scale, by the way. Any engineers, I apologize. We understand from the writings of the New Testament that after Jesus resurrected, over the course of 40 days, he appeared to over 500 people. A physical, resurrected Jesus. And a couple days after his resurrection, we're still in Luke 24, Jesus meets up with his disciples and he says, Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day. He is now in the presence of his disciples. Those disciples who a couple days before at the testimony of these women could not believe them, even though Peter was marveling at what had happened. Now Jesus is in their physical presence. They are with a physically resurrected Jesus. And what Jesus says to them is that, hey, way back here when I announced this in Matthew 16, that wasn't where this idea was hatched for this to happen. He opened their mind to understand the scriptures, saying that everything that was written about him in the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, hundreds of years, millennia before, was all pointing to this. This wasn't a new idea. This was on God's heart from the beginning of the world. And everything that was read in the Tanakh, the Hebrew Old Testament, the Torah, the law, the Nevi'im, the prophets, the Ketuvim, the writings, the Psalms and Proverbs and Job, all of that was pointing forward to this. This had been on God's mind from all eternity. And he's telling them this in the physical presence of them all to say, do you get it? Peter, do you understand that me rising from the dead was the plan all along? This is not new news But now you're beginning to see, and it says he opened their minds, opens their hearts to understand the scriptures. So the question we're left with at this point is, did Peter get it? Did Peter finally understand 
From rebuking Jesus to marveling at these things, now to hearing and having Jesus open his mind to the scriptures, did Peter finally understand? Well, for that, we need to ask the question, what did he do from then on? What did the rest of Peter's life look like? Would that give us a sense of what he believed now? And we know that after Jesus was resurrected, Peter gave his life to proclaiming the gospel. Peter gave his life to boldly, especially in the beginning of Acts, we have access to these sermons, these speeches he gave, under much hostility, declaring with boldness the death and resurrection of Jesus and what that means for anyone who would believe in him. He became a leader in the early Jerusalem church. And 30 years from this point, what we know happened to Peter at the end of his life is that he was in Rome where he was killed for his belief in Jesus. Tradition would say that he was crucified, though Peter himself was unwilling, it says, to be crucified in the same manner as his Lord Jesus, who was crucified 30 years earlier. And tradition would say that Peter was crucified for his faith upside down. And he wasn't the only one. So many of those men and women, those 500 plus who saw a resurrected Jesus, were also killed for their faith. In the decades, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years after Jesus died and rose from the dead. And for me, that is one of the most compelling evidences to the veracity, the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Because if this was one large agreed-upon corporate scam, some big April Fool's joke, you don't hold on to it for 50 years. If I play a trick on my wife and kids today, which I may or may not, you know when I stop playing the trick? April 2nd. Not 50 years from now. These men and women died because they had experienced something of a resurrected Jesus, and for them, there was absolutely nothing that could change their mind. But we do know something about Peter before he was killed. He wrote a couple letters. And we have access to those letters where he is encouraging churches in Asia Minor, churches that are undergoing immense persecution from the Romans, And he writes letters that we have access to in our Bibles, 1 Peter and 2 Peter, to encourage them towards a life of holiness, even in the face of great opposition. And here's what he says, 30 years after the resurrection, very soon to his imminent death, the intro of his letter, 1 Peter, he says this to a collection of churches, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great Mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Verse 9, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. This is Peter. Let me remind you where we've come from. Jesus calls him Satan. He's marveling at the empty tomb. Jesus shows up, gives him understanding to understand that what was written in the scriptures were all pointing to this 
event, this resurrection. 30 years later, he lives a life devoted to letting people know about the good news of Jesus. He writes a couple letters not too long after he's crucified. Verse 9, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your soul. Salvation, it's such a churchy word. It's such a Christian-sounding word. But it is a wonderful word. Because the Bible, if it says anything, it is absolutely clear. Romans 3.23 says that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible spares absolutely no one from this sentence of condemnation. There is no one who is right before the Lord. All of us in our hearts know that at some level, if, if there is a God out there, we have probably done something to offend him. We have probably done something, probably a lot of somethings, probably a lot of somethings today, to separate ourselves from him. And the Bible clearly says, Romans 6.23, this won't be on the screen, the wages of our sin is death, a spiritual death, a separation from a perfect and holy God. But the Bible also says in Romans 5.8 that God himself demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were sinners, while we were still in this state of sin, of separation, of rebellion from God, both active and passive, that Christ died for us. Why would he do that? Why would Jesus come, born Christmas as a baby, grow up, in the backwaters of Galilee, only to appear on the scene to living a perfect and holy and flawless life, knowing who he was, knowing where he was going, knowing that he was going to die to reconcile sinful men and women to a holy God so that they could spend eternity with him. Why? The author of Hebrews tells us, Hebrews 12, 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him, for the joy that was set before Jesus, he endured the cross. Before Jesus was crucified, before he was resurrected, he's speaking to a group of people in John 10. And speaking of his own life, John 10, 18, he says this, no one has taken it away from me. No one has taken my life away from me, but I, I lay it down on my own initiative. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. Jesus Christ, of his own volition, laid down his life, emptied himself, like Jeff was talking about last week, Philippians 2, 7. Why? Hebrews 12, 2. For the joy set before him. What is that joy? What is this joy that was set before Jesus? It was you. It was me. The Bible clearly states, John 3, 17, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but that so the world might be saved through him. The joy that caused Jesus to lay his life down, the joy that was set before him, it was so that he could have you. Paul writes in Romans 10 that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
And what does that mean to be saved? Well, 1 Peter, our text today, reminds us. Verse 3 of 1 Peter 1, we understand that God is the subject who is acting on us, the object. We understand from this text that it is God who is responsible by means of the resurrection for us to be born again. And as you guys know, being born is always stated in the passive voice, which is to say that being born is that you are the recipient of an action, you are not the doer of an action. To say it differently, none of you caused yourself to be born into this physical life. In the same way, the Bible is very clear that none of you cause yourself to be born, again, a passive voice, into this new life. God is the subject who is enacting the verb upon which we are the passive recipients of it. And what are we born into? Verse 3 says, a living hope. What does it mean to be saved? It means that God has caused something to happen to us and we are now born into a living hope. It means that, yes, while we are still here on this earth, scrapping it out, trying to make ourselves feel significant, trying to find some form of security, whether it's in wealth or sex or drugs or in a marriage or whatever, we have a living hope, which means we can have a present confidence in what is to come. And it allows you as a Christian not just to appreciate Jesus as Savior, that he is worthy of worship when you die and somehow then he becomes effective in your life, but that you can treat him now if you believe in him as Lord. You can obey him in this physical life because we don't just have a hope cast in the future. We have a living hope that is grounded in the immediacy and presentness of our experience. God causes us, apart from our own effort, to be born into a living hope. Hope in what? Verse 4, an inheritance, which is described as imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away. Now, here's one of those instances in our English New Testaments that we don't get the weight of what the author is saying. If we were Greek scholars here, we would read this and we would understand that Peter is making an emphasis to the nature of this inheritance that we can have our hope in. He uses the force, he uses some poetic alliteration to drive his point home. He uses three Greek words, imperishable, apthartos, undefiled, amiantas, will not fade away, amarantas. Paul is just throwing adjectives at this idea of this inheritance so that his audience knows beyond any doubt that this hope that we can be assured of will never change and will never leave. And he says it's reserved for you. Verse 5, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The fullness of a Christian's salvation is revealed in the end of all things when Jesus Christ again is revealed. And while, yes, if you have believed in Jesus, you are saved. 
That is to say, you are in right standing with God, which is to say that Jesus' perfect, flawless record of obedience has been credited to you, and your totally flawed, totally faulty record of disobedience has been put on him at the cross. As a Christian, you are both, you have salvation as a matter of possession, and you are moving into the fullness of salvation at the end of all things as part of a process. And so the question we have is, well, then how do we get this? This sounds great, Tom. How do we get this? I, I would love to have a living hope. I would love to, to have the confidence that what is in store for me is imperishable, undefiled, will never fade away. It's reserved for me. It's unbearably simple. Verse 5 gives us a hint. Verse 9 gives us a hint. Verse 5, through faith. Verse 9, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. As, as a minister, as a preacher, I'm just going to say this really clearly. You are not saved by your good moral standing. You are not saved by your pedigree. You are not saved by the fact that you show up at church on Sunday morning. Me going into my garage doesn't make me a car. You're not saved by how many acts of compassion you do. You're not saved by the fact that you've memorized Bible verses or lead a Bible study or a discovery group. You're not saved by how socially aware or how relevant you are. The Bible says with striking clarity, the only thing that you can possibly be saved by is faith. And at this point, we should ask, well, faith in what? Faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. There's no substitute. There's no alternative. Faith that Jesus' claims about himself, faith that what Jesus did on this earth, living a perfect life, dying a perfect death so that you could be reconciled to a holy God, faith that Jesus himself was indeed the Son of God, that he was risen from the dead, and that as it says in Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. You see, it was Peter who in Matthew 16, even after being with Jesus for two and a half years, he did not get it. But something was changing in him. He understood that, that Jesus wasn't just great like the other rabbis, that it was Jesus himself who possessed and demonstrated a different kind of greatness. Proven when he was risen from the dead. And it was Peter who for the rest of his life, after experiencing that, would not be swayed, would not be changed, could not possibly consider giving himself to anything less than treating Jesus as Lord, to proclaiming the gospel, this good news that Jesus himself is risen. And you know what it cost him? Everything. 
And was that okay with Peter? I have to believe absolutely. Because we know what he wrote right here is that he had an imperishable, undefiled inheritance that would not change. And so while today we've looked at Peter's timeline, we all, we all have timelines, right? This could very well be you. Maybe you're here today and, and you might say, yeah, I, I actually kind of identify with Peter at this place. Like I said, that's okay. Jesus was so patient with Peter. Maybe you're right here. Maybe all this is kind of starting to come together, but the reality is you still have questions. You're, you're marveling. What, what is going on? What is all this? Maybe you're somewhere over here. Maybe the idea of Jesus rising from the dead isn't just a nice moral thought, a nice folk tale that, that gives people a warm feeling in the spring. Maybe in your heart, Jesus actually is something more, something greater than you ever thought he was. And I don't know where you are on this timeline, but if you're anything like me, I want you to understand that Jesus possesses a different kind of greatness. And like Peter, to see Jesus clearly is to be changed by him permanently. Like I said at the beginning of this, this sermon, I, I didn't always um, identify as a Christian. Um, and the reality is, even to this day, there are still things about living in this world, and it just feels like there's a sort of systematic sadness, a systematic of me giving myself to things that I think will satisfy. Whether it's relationships, whether it's putting too much hope in my identity as a dad or as as, as a husband or as a minister or as whatever job you might find yourself in. And there's this great quote that C.S. Lewis has, and I'll, I'll end with this, in which he identifies that we can so easily give ourselves to things that we think are going to be the thing that will satisfy, the thing that will make everything fall into place and that everything will be right. And we have this tendency to look at things, look at marriage, look at a relationship, look at our financial security, and what Lewis says is, yeah, we weren't made for that. There's got to be something more. Let me read what he says in The Weight of Glory. And speaking of this desire for our own far-off country, which we find in ourselves even now, I feel a certain shyness. We cannot tell it because it is a desire for something that has never actually appeared in our experience. We cannot hide it because our experience is constantly suggesting it. The books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. My prayer for you guys today is that Jesus would become greater in your mind, not by a matter of degrees, but by a matter of category, of kind. That you would believe. That you would believe that what Jesus did 2,000 years ago in rising from the dead 
wasn't grounds for you to be pitied above all men, but that you would see it as something that would change everything for you. And we're going to pray in just a moment. The worship team is going to come back up. The promise, though, in Romans 10 is that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, truly believe, not just agree to intellectual doctrine, but that you believe in a way that's going to affect your experience, you will be saved. And if that's you, or if you have questions, or if something in your heart is being stirred up, I would encourage you to talk to someone near you. During the time of worship, I think we're going to have a few people over on the side, part of our prayer team. Feel free to go talk to them. But don't leave without talking to someone. Maybe you say, I believe. I, I absolutely believe. Well, we're going to have baptisms here in a few minutes. And you can be baptized. The Bible talks about one of the first acts of obedience of a new Christian is to be baptized, to boldly and publicly declare that I am not who I was, but that Jesus has died with me, and in the act of baptism, I want to identify with him both in his death and resurrection because I am a new creation through faith in Christ. Maybe that's for you today. Guys, let's bow our heads. We're going to pray. Lord Jesus, we are uh, grateful, not in the measure that, that uh, you deserve, but we're grateful in the ways that we can be because of what you've done. Lord, this weekend as we celebrate both your, your dying for our sins and your, your rising for our justification, for the fullness of us being made right before God, Lord, we just want to worship you. Lord, give us eyes to see you clearly. Lord, we recognize that even the faith we have to receive you is a gift. Lord, that we don't bring anything to the table, and our being born again is not something that we initiate, and is not something that we can bring about, but it is a gift from you. And so, Lord, if I pray for the courage and the humility. If there are those who are having their hearts stirred up, if they, Jesus, are seeing you differently, that you would allow them in joy to respond. Lord, we do love you. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.